whole story about love, they always twist it into what they think it should be about. Like, it's almost like the idea of God was a Rorschach test for Nebuchadnezzar. Like, when he looked at God, he always saw what he wanted to see. I mean, here God saves people's lives. He goes, hey, if you don't believe in this God that saves lives, I'm going to slice and dice you into pieces. It's like, this guy could not imagine anyone being different than himself. I mean, those of you that want to know more about this, it's called narcissistic personality disorder. And it's uh, part of uh, the DSM-5. It was That's used to diagnose people's psychological issues. And what you'll find out is there's this psychological phenomenon that basically describes every ruler of the world that has ever existed, except for Jesus. So whether you're a powerful political figure, they're all narcissists. And then there's people that don't have power, they're still narcissists. They just, instead of ruling over a kingdom, they're usually like abusive parents or an abusive spouse or a, maybe it's a teacher or whatever. But uh, this is, I, I think, when I think about King Nebuchadnezzar, I think adventures and missing the point. Adve further adventures and missing a point. But today we're going to talk about Daniel 3 and our series, Babylon USA. We're going to specifically talk about this idea, the fourth man factor, also known as the third man factor, which is a little bit frustrating to my OCD brain. Uh, but I'll explain why there's both a third man and a fourth man factor, referring to this other person that they, this apparition of a person they saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. Um, so a lot of you know that I, uh, I was gone last week because I was taking survival training. Just let me clarify something. I'm not a prepper, all right? You know, the, the big preparation I believe in is be prepared to love your neighbor, all right? But I do love Ohio. I love nature, and I love this idea of knowing how different plants function and how to uh, basically go camping without as much gear but a lot of skills. And so I went to this class, and it had a wide demographic of people. Uh, we had one person that came with a truck that was outfitted for the apocalypse. And then I, 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 my new friend Alejandro's got his PhD in public health, and he's really concerned about healthcare for healthcare for the poor in specific uh, areas where there's not healthcare provided. So I was super excited to meet Alejandro that cares about like everyone receiving the healthcare they need. And that was awesome. Hey, well, can someone assist there, please? Uh, Doug, could you head over there right now? Yeah, okay, we, uh, those of you on leave, we just had a, a disturbance here. Uh, someone from off the street came in, and uh, looks like someone is uh, having a domestic issue. So I'm going to just interrupt and pray, because that's how we roll. Father God, I just know people in the stress are, are str struggling right now. These folks are struggling right now. And I ask your peace, God, help us to be peacemakers. Help us to be filled with your spirit. I pray for the people intervening in that situation right now, God that we would bring your love, your kindness, your intervention, and salvation would come in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bring your peace, bring protection and safety. Amen? All right. So I know it's a little awkward, but um, 
I'm trusting that God is with the folks that are intervening there, and I'll continue on this story. And they kind of relate, actually. So anyway, we have Nebuchadnezzar, and we have the fourth man factor. And so I want to tell the story about the fourth man factor, Rewani, or the third man factor. So Sir Ernest Shackleton, I said that I went to this prepping or this uh, self-reliance school, and it was awesome. I, I went with Isaac McCain, barely made it through. So I was going to die the first day, but then I made it through and got my certification. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, but uh, in, along with this, I've been reading a lot about exploration and people living under extreme conditions. And I've been particularly inspired by polar exploration. Polar exploration was super popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was like the same to us as exploring deep space. Like if we sent a manned expedition to Mars, that would be the equivalent of the adventures of polar exploration. We didn't have satellite maps, we didn't have Google Earth. No one knew what was up there. No one knew what was up there or down there at any of the poles. So certainly Shackleton in uh, the early 1900s was exploring the South Pole. And in 1919, he wrote a book about his experiences. And I've been listening to all of these different polar exploration diaries. I've been listening to all of them on audiobook, and it's just been really charging me up. But here's what Shackleton wrote. He described the belief that there was some kind of individual or, or spiritual being with them that joined him and two other people during the last, most torturous leg of their expedition. And he wrote, uh, he wrote this specifically, he says that during the long and raking march of 36 hours over unnamed mountains and glaciers, it seemed to me often that we were actually four people and not three. Now Shackleton's admission inspired other survivors of extreme hardship to share very similar experiences. And after Shackleton published this book, other explorers and other people who'd been in terrifying situations often wrote that there was this other person with them. And to the point where even uh, there was uh, a climber, uh, let's see, I'm trying to figure which one this was. I don't uh, remember which explorer, but it was an explorer in 1936 who was climbing towards Everest and trying to get to the top. At the end, they were suffering with deep pain, desperation, didn't think they were gonna make it. And at one point, when they, they got the second win, they wanted to hand a bit of their chocolate rations to the person that had been climbing Everest with him. He turns back, and there's no one there. And basically, at this point, he was so stressed that he perceived another person was with him. Now, he knew he had set out alone, but he just assumed this other person was with him, and then there was no one there. But he had, with every other sense, felt that presence. Now that has uh, been called the third man hypothesis after what Shackleton described as a fourth person being there. So why didn't they call it the fourth man hypothesis? Well, T.S. Eliot wrote a poem as part of the Wasteland that described this, and T.S. Eliot thought, well, fourth man doesn't exactly have the ring to it as third man to it. So he wrote a poem about the fourth man, but called it the third man. And so here's how it goes. Who is the her third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead, up the white road, there's always another walking beside you. Gilding, wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is that on the other side of you? 
Hence, instead of naming the idea after the reality that Shackleton experienced, we named it the third man hypothesis. All that to say is I'm going to call it the fourth man factor because I'm a little obsessive that way. So I want to talk about the fourth man factor regarding how we as a community of people endeavoring to follow Jesus Christ, the Son of God, how we live in the idea that the fourth man is always with us, that there's always an additional presence helping us across the way, the fourth man factor. So I want to quickly read this passage. Daniel gave a great summary of it. And uh, after I read the passage, King Nebuchadnezzar just really uh, is a long name, so I'm just going to call him Nebi. And it's like Nebi's people, Nebi this, Nebi that. King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, like when we talk about presidents, we just address them pretty much by their last name. So in honoring our modern culture, I'm just going to call him Nebi. Cool? All right. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, let me say something about the plain of Dura, okay? The plain of Dura, Dura means plain. So this is kind of funny, it says the plain of plain, which is kind of like if you've heard about that boat, Bodie McBoatface. Also, even in the ancient world, they must have had a contest to see who has the most boats to name this plain. And some funny guys got together, maybe the ancient version of Stephen Colbert, and said all vote for uh, uh, Plain McPlain. So they named the plain Plain of Plain, and the Bible records that. And for some reason, at Plain McPlain, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps inspired by his dream of a giant statue, made a giant statue in his honor. Now, can you imagine a powerful world leader insisting on creating a monument in honor of themselves versus uh, to honor the people they lead? Is that real? That's not so cool. And uh, anyway, he just... Just last chapter, there was a dream of this amazing statue whose, the bottom of it was made of brittle clay. And this statue gets destroyed. And once again, Nebuchadnezzar, instead of hearing the point that all empires will crumble, he goes, statue, cool idea. I want to make a statue about me. I'm playing the playing area. And he goes further than this. So he then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up, they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of other music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold the King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all other kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He was holding a rally. And at this time, some astrologers came forward who, and denounced the Jewish people. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all the kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. 
and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of God you'd set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of God that I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the you know, horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all the kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image, actually they had a mental health examination where you had to repeat certain words in order. And you had to go like, okay, can you repeat this for a cognitive test? Horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe. <laughs> I think that's why they're doing this. Anyway. Um, but if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, King Nebuchadnezzar, we, not, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods and worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Uh-oh. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the furnace was so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. I want to pause here. There's a very important note here. Oftentimes the scripture talks about the judgment of God coming against people. In the language used, it almost sounds like God is like sending laser beams or fire down on people. And the Bible uses that kind of poetic imagery, but then the actual fulfillment of that judgment is almost always described as being the natural fruit of the evil that someone perpetuates. Like God talked about the judgment of Israel if they make all these alliances with these evil nations. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. God talks about his wrath coming on them. And what God's wrath is, these guys sided with these people, upset these other people, and these other people come and beat up on this people. So the fruit of sin, the judgment of sin, is the natural consequence of the sin. And though there is imagery used that describes it being the judgment of God, the way God's judgment works is God's like saying, Hey, don't run out in front of cars in the street or you're going to be punished. Do not run out in front of cars in the street. Someone runs in front of the car and gets smacked. God did not run them over with a car. God warned them. So this is an important interpretive grid, especially when you read the Old Testament. Jeremiah goes into this more explicitly in his book, and there's other places that describe how we interpret these deals. So basically, these guys who stoked up the fire to murder these people, it got, his vengeance burned so hot that the judgment of heat came up upon Nebuchadnezzar's own people. That the violence of this evil empire hurt members of this evil empire. 
But by some paranormal, miraculous intervention of God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not burn. Now listen, that, that is impossible, but we believe in a universe made up of atoms, and these atoms are made up of particles. And relative to the size of those particles, there's almost incalculable space between each particle that makes up an atom, which means every single atom in this universe is 99.99999% space, which means the majority of everything we touch, rock solid, is actually space, not substance. And the idea is at the very fundamental, smallest parts of matter, there's a force that holds everything together. And long before quantum physics and even the discovery of the atom, the Bible describes the universe being held together by the sustaining love of God. And philosophers later on basically said, Christian philosophers, that existence in itself is good and loving, and corruption is evil. To exist is good, and that God creates everything. Satan doesn't create anything, but he corrupts good, which he means he causes decay and dissolution upon existence. Now, why am I going here? Well, when we talk about miraculous happenings in the scripture that are not normal. The scripture never acts like these occurrences are normal. When the scripture tells the, these paranormal stories, isn't just, oh, we're just credulous people that believe all magical things happen all the time. No, the scripture points it out because it's sensational. And the idea is, if we believe, if anyone believes in some kind of higher power or some kind of God, you already, then you in some way believe that existence is held together by that God. In the existence itself, the existence of any piece of matter in itself is a paranormal, miraculous experience. The fact that I can interact with this person, Don Morrison, who is almost the incalculable amount of space that I see as substance, is because this matter is held together by the love of God at a quantum level. So when we talk about miraculous, any miraculous, occurrence in the Bible, we're talking like a second tier miraculous happening compared to just existence. And anyone, whether theist or non-theist, that just embraces existence itself has already embraced a miraculous, paranormal experience. And the story of God is that this force that holds all reality together is actually love. The force behind all existence is love. The, anything we see that we perceive as evil is decayed goodness. It is not a thing. It is a thing entering into non-thinghood. So excursion back, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not get burned. They did not get lightly toasted. Their garments did not even get singed. No shrink, no aroma of smoke. Yes, this is impossible, but so is reality. So here we are. Uh, so. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound, unarmed, and the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach! And Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So, I love how nonchalant this next section is. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, 
In the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Pray be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. God who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut to pieces and their houses turned to piles of rubble for no other god can save this way. Missing the point. So once again, we see Shadrach, Meshach, then after Nebuchadnezzar sees his demonstration of power, he goes, okay, your god wins the god, celebrity god match this round, so everyone has to honor your god, or I'll slice and dice him. Proving that Shadrach, uh, that he said your god, not my god. I'll tell you what, when you have power, when you have so much wealth, you can believe in god. You can talk about God. You can show up and appear next to religious leaders, evangelical Christian leaders, and say honoring things about their God without their God being our God. And we've seen this throughout the history of American politics. We've seen uh, brutal leaders who own slaves talk about an ambiguous picture of God like Jefferson or maybe specifically uh, God being Jesus, like, uh, uh, what was the guy, Old Hickory, the guy trailed tears, genocide master, Andrew Jackson, yeah. So we've had leaders that talk about God, but then engage in policies that sound just like slicing, dicing, and cuisine art these people, all right? Like, like Jackson led us doing to a lot of native tribes, that don't, many of which don't even exist today because he was perfect in his genocide. All right, so this idea that there could be someone that gives lip service to a God that is totally opposed to the love of that God is as old as people are old. Nebuchadnezzar, this cult, how many things we do not know about ancient Babylonian culture, but man, we've got the heart of Babylon, every one of us, in us. I'll tell you what, I don't know how many times I took sides in a war where I would count the dead as being our people who died, not how many people that bear the image of God died. You know, when we talk about statistics and losses and war, we, we generally don't talk about the kids who a stray drone strike took out their house. Babylon counts what Babylon values, and Babylon doesn't count anyone else. And if I was a citizen of uh, Norway, I would talk about how Norway is Babylon. I would talk about how Norway does a real inadequate job at welcoming refugees from uh, other nations. I would talk about how very Scandinavian nations have to deal with uh, racism in their midst and they're doing a bad job of it. I'm not Norwegian. I do love Norwegian and Scandinavian pop music, Aha and Abba, but I'm not Norwegian. I'm American, so if you hear me talking about my country, it's because I'm a professional American. I've studied it for 49 years. But don't think I think all these other countries are idyllic, wonderful, rainbows and unicorns, and ice cream for all places. I just deal with my backyard because I'm a shareholder. I pay taxes. This is my people. Every bomb that's been dropped by our nation has a little micro sense of my investment in it. So that, I'm talking about me. So we have God delivering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. First thing I want to talk about is self-aggrandizement Narcissism and the enemies of God. 
People in power, if you ever think power or wealth is going to get you to this point where you're no longer unhappy, I want you to think of the most powerful, rich, or famous person you've ever known and imagine it and just research their life to the best of your ability and ask yourself, is this person happy? Is this person happy? Um, a conversation I have with Adrian is uh, many times we've encountered people that have some form of power that have done something to hurt us. And I'm tempted to hate people or resent people that have done stuff to hurt us or our family. In the conversation we've been having of late, Adrian and I and our kids are, let's just take a couple steps back. We love God. We believe the creator of the universe unconditionally loves us. That all-powerful creator of the universe has taught us how to forgive one another. We're coming up on 25 years of marriage, and we love each other more than we did during the honeymoon phase. We have learned to become forgiveness ninjas compared to what we were when we got married. We have more that we enjoy about each other. We are less insecure. Still got a lot more to go. Less insecure, less judgmental. Um, we have more generosity. We're less, and we got a long way to go. But I think of every measure of emotional happiness, our life has been a trajectory upwards. And I'm saying this as a guy that struggles with clinical depression. Thank God that at least I have access to healthcare for that, right? Which everyone did. So anyone, anyway, I look at that and I say, Adrian, in Christ we have all the power, and this person who is trying to hurt us is pathetically sad and hurting and thrashing. And guys, I would say that about all the leaders of the free world. All the leaders, past and present, of the free world. I would not want to be one of them. I would not want to have one of their private lives. I cannot imagine, yeah, that someone say, well, I can just always upgrade to a new and younger wife. I said, but you know what? I've never seen that world leader reflect any joy and happiness. Have you ever just seen them in a candid moment seeming joyful? Never. The power of love resides in the powerless who only show allegiance to the power of God. The power of joy is only in those that have the power of love because they submitted to a loving God and have allegiance to no other nation. And the enemy of God, the enemies of the agendas of God are into narcissism, self-aggrandizement. So, listen, if you are a majority culture person, Listen, I don't really think people in minority cultures or people are persecuted. I don't think those people should be engaging in self-deprecating behavior. If you are not a majority culture person and you make fun or put yourself down, what that is, the narcissistic leaders will see you and say, see, you know what I know, that you're not worth anything. But if you're a majority culture person like me, white male Jeff in America, I'm a majority culture person. I've got something that a lot of people don't have. I've got a power. And, you know, I have learned not to trust majority culture people that take themselves too seriously and aren't able to laugh at themselves. Because somewhere in that person is, I want me a statue. I want, me, I want to have a statue. I want to be honored. If you're a majority culture person and you can't laugh at yourself and you can't admit you're wrong, you've probably fallen into the wannabe Nebuchadnezzar trap. So, just kind of uh, wrapping things up a little bit here. Nebi loyalists. Nebby loyalists, people think they can get value by kissing the butt of someone who thinks they're of ultimate value. And so Nebby and all world leaders 
uh, have a group of people that want to honor them and not God. And let me tell you, I was on this training weekend, I was with my partner, we were doing a navigation course, and he was talking to me about patriotism. And he's talking to me, he's like, and this person said, I can't stand people that aren't patriots. And this guy identified as a Christian. And I said, well, what about patriots of other nations? And I named a couple, he goes, well, they're wrong. I said, well, does everything our nation do, 100% of our nation do, under our flag, is it right? Well, how about historically? You know, this person was of Asian descent. I said, there was a time where you were excluded from immigration here, and you were not allowed to vote, and you were not this, and you were practically enslaved in building our railroads. I said, that happened under a flag. Are you patriotic about that? He goes, well, no. I said, I think, as a Christian, I am a huge fan of gratitude. I'm grateful for all the, the blessings that have been afforded to me by being born on this patch of land. I am grateful for the good things of America. I'm very critical about the bad things. But I'm never going to checkmark an approve or disapprove box. Because we have one space for allegiance to one ruler. And that is King Jesus. And we can participate in our country. We can even try to be salt and light politics. But we cannot show allegiance to anyone. We cannot, and I have a problem, Republican, Democrat, or know-nothing party, whether I have a problem with anyone who's a fan. Because I, not a problem with you like you're a bad person, but I, ha I feel bad for you because there's no room, you can't ha have multiple fandoms. Uh, you can be a fan of God, and then you vote for the person you think will uh, lead to the least loss of life and the most welcome. All right, so we all hold our noses. We vote for the person we think will have the lowest body count, knowing that all our allegiance goes to the person who raises dead bodies. Amen? So I'm not saying uh, be Republican or Democrat. or anything. I'm saying be like Jesus and try to mitigate suffering with any microscopic bit of power you have. So how do followers of God... I know, I've got about... How do followers of God respond to worshipful loyalty? This is my final deal here. So the followers of God are threatened with death that they have to worship Nebuchadnezzar. They seem pretty chill, don't they? Like, oh, we're not going not gonna to play. Um, there's a, sometimes a problem if you take one Bible study and create a formula on how to respond to power. People pick and choose, so they say, this is always how you do it. These guys did not resist Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, well, you can go try to kill us, and God will save us or not. That was this case. When Paul, when people were hunting Paul, trying to kill Paul, his followers smuggled him out in a basket, like in Indiana Jones, the first movie, hiding in a basket or whatever. They smuggled him out in a basket. They broke the law. When the spies were being hunted at Rahab, hid them and lied to the people searching for We see all these different responses to oppression in the Bible. Some are active, some are passive, some people just let the chips fall, other people non-violently, actively resist evil. So I'm not saying in the face of injustice, we just let it happen. Because that seems what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But let's be realistic. They're sitting here bound up in front of the king. They didn't have a choice either way. There was no option to do the basket exit route that Paul utilized. They're sitting there bound up. So they're just being realistic. So what do you do when there's no way out? Well, what they didn't do is they did not speak hatefully to Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't hate Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't speak a curse and saying, may your 
children be dashed upon the rocks. They didn't speak any word of violence. They did not even show any affiliation with an ideology of violence. They basically said, hey, God will save us. And even if he doesn't, he's still God and you're whatever. So you can oppose evil without hating the perpetuators of evil. We can oppose evil, but the only way to really oppose evil and not become evil is not hate people who do evil. That means love the politician. And that doesn't mean at all justify them. The most loving thing you can ever do to someone is see where they're really at and pray for God's mercy on them. Love is not denial. You can also rebel without hating. They rebelled actively against the elective official and they broke the law. These guys were definitely against law and order. Because by the law and justice are not always the same thing. If there's a law that says do not murder, that is a just law. If there is a law saying that as a black person, you're only three, is it three fifths of a human being, that is an unjust law. So law and justice are separate things. Upon occasion, laws and the righteousness of God overlap. But in this case, uh, we had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were anti-law, and they would not follow orders because they knew of the justice of God, and they knew it was God who would vindicate him. So friends, as people who are residents of Babylon here, we need to think about separating law from justice. Sometimes they're together, sometimes they are. Sometimes they say, well, only people would do this legally. Well, that was said by slave owners all the time. All the time. Slave owners would always tell people to obey the law because they got rich off it. So law and justice don't always intersect. We can rebel without hating. We can oppose without hatred. And we can, this is good for people like me with my particular cadre of mental struggles, is we can face threats and be set free from anxiety. Now these guys had already witnessed the fact that they went on this vegetarian diet and they were able to be stronger than these people that were taking creatine and anabolic steroids. All right, so they already said, wow, we were eating celery sticks and we're buff. There must be a God. So they had some level of confidence because they knew how God had been faithful beforehand. But we don't see them flipping out. Now, I'm not going to judge anyone for flipping out in danger. But as followers of God, the less of a fan we become of political power or human power or corporate power or the power of riches, strength, or ninjutsu, the less we're a fan of that power, the more we're a fan of the power of love. That is healing of anxiety. And if we meditate on that, the Bible talks about meditating on truth day and night. We will actually rewire the traumatized synaptic pathways of our brain when we focus on the love of God. It will heal us from trauma. Not instant. It's not like wham, bam, thank you, Jesus, we're healed now. Listen, trauma sometimes takes a lifetime to mitigate. It is, it is, healing isn't trauma has gone away. Healing is, am I able to live past this trauma one centimeter more than I was last year? Healing is gradual, we celebrate it all. So, listen, the story of Nebuchadnezzar is on repeat. There was a political rally when I was in Florida taking care of my dad, and they actually wheeled out this replica golden statue of this major American political figure. And I'm like, man, guys, if you would just read your Bible instead of holding it like as a distance like it was a dirty diaper, if you just read that Bible, you would know you're playing into a Nebi trope. 
this is a Nebi trope. It's like, this is the Bible. This is the diaper. My kid just crapped himself. You know? No. No golden statue of people. And even God's like, don't make a golden statue of me. I'm so much better than gold. Come on. You make a golden statue of me, it's like making a statue out of turds of me. I'm so much better than gold. No graven images. All right? Just make good music. I like music. Sing to me. So, um, guys, it is hard for us to imagine a rebellion that doesn't involve violence. It's hard for us to imagine fighting evil where we're not Clint Eastwood in fistful dollars where we're shooting people. But the rebellion of God is like, okay, guys, do what you need to do. My God's bigger. The rebellion of God does, the real action is you can't touch this. And let me tell you guys, the reason we're talking here today is because there were so many countless unnamed followers of Jesus who did not post allegiance to Caesar or any other ruler because people did not rely on political power to inform their faith. This story has not expired. The whole world right now, different time zones, is talking about Jesus because people did not rely on violence to spread the story. The reason people can't stop talking about it is because enemy loving all right? So in America, listen, I've got people I think are more deluded than other people in leadership. And we can maybe have debates about who is more deluded. But the fact of the matter is, compared to Jesus, everyone needs an intervention. So I want to ask us, Central Vineyard, many of you, many of you online here, I see you on Facebook and everything. It is great to decry injustice. But let's do a Jesus style. You know, heck. People even break the law to save lives. In the history of Christianity, that's been one constant, is people have nonviolently broken the law. You know the greatest rescuer of the Jewish people in World War II? Who's heard the word name Andre Trachme? Anyone? Le Chambon. He, he, oh, my hero. He pastored a group of Christians that were 100% committed to nonviolence. And everyone in his little village went to his church. And he was anti-violence. And what they did is this became the greatest exit point through France of Jews escaping the Nazis. And the thing is, the Nazis could not kill everyone in a village. Because who would make them hamburgers? You all, whenever you conquer a place, you've got to leave enough people to clean out the outhouse and make your hamburgers. Or their schnitzel or whatever they ate. All right? So if a whole village stood in solidarity to nonviolent rebellion, they couldn't do anything about it because they still needed their burgers. So because of this nonviolent resistance, more Jews were saved by this village than any other single group in World War II because that is how the people of God roll. We often talk about one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was part of a plot to, to bomb Hitler and to assassinate Hitler. And I'm not going to judge Dietrich Bonhoeffer or anyone, but here's the deal. Because of that bomb, Hitler tightened up his defenses, and World War II was extended. And because World War II was extended, more Jews were exterminated by that war, and partially because Christians embraced violence. People say, well, what about World War, about World War II? World War I, at the end of World War I, the nations gathered and said, we need to get back at Germany. We're going to make these policies that put Germany in such deep poverty. And let me tell you, I don't care who you are. After you've missed a week of meals, most humans are ready to kill. 
If your kid suffers, who wouldn't do almost anything if your kid is suffering and may die? Right? I think it all goes out of the window when your kid's hungry. In the nations of the world, instead of restorative justice, acting retribution, and then you have a nation of hungry people and hungry kids, and the hatred of Hitler came together, and that gave us World War II. Imagine if the church would have been vocal about restorative justice, not retribution. Guys, I know it seems like I'm going off, but the purpose of talking about Daniel is the people of God play by a redemptive set of rules that has no room for hate or revenge. And therein lies the power. Amen. Let's stand. Communion. When we celebrate communion, we celebrate something very similar to what Andre Trocme did. Jesus, the Romans are coming for him. The religious leaders are coming for him. And he's preparing people to say, I'm going to defeat this crew just like you were set free from Egypt. I'm going to set you free in a way, and there's going to be no plague of the firstborn. There's going to no, we're not going to, in this Passover, think of every one of our enemies losing a child. This Passover was different. In this Passover, one person died, and that Passover was Jesus. And we take this cup, whether we know it or not, the act of eating is this physical, beyond verbal expression that we pledge allegiance to a God who loves enemies. We pledge allegiance to a God that invites everyone to become his people. We pledge allegiance and submit to saying we will be the hands and feet of God that all, none will perish, that all will know Jesus loves you no matter what. He is king. He has good things for you. So communion, people say, if you, I, I heard growing up, if, if you have communion every week, you'll take it for granted. Yet, yet in school we would every week, day, pledge allegiance to the flag. I said, no. There's a million ways to tell this story because there's a million ways where we hurt and communion addresses every one of them. So Lord Jesus, I pray your presence over these elements that we take this, that in our hearts we would realize that we are aligning ourselves to the great stability we have to your peaceable kingdom. Lord Jesus, we invite you to take over our lives. Lord Jesus, we ask you to forgive us of our shortcomings, failures, sins, God, forgive us for everything we tried to do good that blew up in our face and did bad. Forgive us, God. We pledge allegiance to you. We put our faith in the nonviolent Jesus who rose from the dead, conquered empire without throwing a punch. We put our faith in Jesus. We put our trust in your salvation. We ask for your ongoing healing. And Lord Jesus, since we say you're king, we presume you've got some marching orders for us. So Lord Jesus, Tell us and show us day by day, minute by minute, how to be agents of your love and kindness. Jesus, come into our hearts, captivate our hearts, and send us out to enjoy doing your stuff. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? Okay. Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, by one of his buddies, by the way. Jesus, has anyone of you ever been betrayed by a spouse or a loved one? Jesus knows what it's like. He took the bread and he broke it and said, hey, this is my body.